help him as much as he needs and help your child realize that a mistake is an opportunity to learn. I tell my students that almost every day. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Jill. Hello. How are you? I was getting nervous that I was by myself for a while and I didn't know if I got knocked out. <laughs> I am well. Well, this is our first first one of the day and so I think technically we're looking good. I'm sure if we uh, if we don't look good, there's not much Michael can do about that. But if we don't sound good, he might tell us what to do. Welcome to everyone joining us for our Saturday virtual retreat here in the spring. It is a beautiful spring day here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, I see we've got people from all over in North America, and I guess in the high country. How are you doing, Jill? I'm doing well. I'm actually in the Chicago area visiting my dad and borrowing his very fast internet here. I see in the chat that we have quite a few people that are wondering if we're even going to describe what the different disabilities are and so forth. So I wonder if we should start by kind of giving him an overview of what we plan to do today. Yes, that would be very good. I've got uh, the number of questions here and they are divided up so that the first section is kind of on the uh, dyslexia, dysgraphia uh, issues. Then I believe we have kind of the ADD, OCD kinds of issues. And then we have some with comprehension and probably some uh, spectrum issues. Is that what uh, you've got as well planned? Yes, very much so. And then I had a couple of ideas of overview. I think, first of all, you know, we're not going to go into deeply what is dysgraphia, what is dyslexia. And, you know, I know, I bet if we talk to two different experts, we get completely different answers. But what we're trying to do today is to give you guys some practical advice of any special need. And I tend to find the labels aren't terribly helpful. You know, you could be told your diabetes, that you have diabetes, but there's a gazillion things that you can do to help it depending on what level you're at. So I think we'll be looking more into, you know, just practical advice. And the other thing I thought of when I was looking through the questions, I suspect our answers are going to keep repeating two things. One is my favorite saying of yours, Andrew, that I tell parents almost daily, you cannot help your child too much. And so we're going to be talking about how you can help your child. And the other is my favorite truism from Anna Ingham, a mistake is an opportunity to learn. And I think between those two, uh, you can pretty much deal with just about any special need. Excellent. Very good introduction. So let's just jump in to some of the questions here. My son is eight. I've not had an official dyslexia evaluation, although I expect 
and suspect he has it, would you recommend an official evaluation? If he does have dyslexia, would you recommend that I tell him? Well, you and I both have children, you more than one. I have one real serious one that didn't read until quite later and had issues with the dyslexia reading and writing. What would your quick answer for that one be? We'll compare it with mine. <laughs> okay, I have eight children and six of them had learning dif difficulties. Only two of them found learning easy. So I never had any of them tested and I'm not sure testing would have really helped me because, you know, from working with them on a daily basis, I knew exactly what their problems were. And, you know, a label such as dyslexia or dysgraphia or dyscalculia, which I suspect all of them had, along with auditory processing disorder, simply because she couldn't understand what I told her. <laughs> you know, the, that would have given me a label, but it didn't really give me any answers for how to help them. So, you know, if your child is having trouble learning to read, diagnosis of dyslexia won't necessarily help you know how to help them read. It'll just reinforce, yeah, you got a problem. But many of the things that we're going to explain today are things that will work to help any child learn how to read a uh, learning disorder or not. Let me add to that. I, I agree with Jill. A diagnosis generally doesn't help you solve your problems. And often the people who do diagnose learning issues, learning disabilities, don't really know how to tell you what to do about it. I think there's two cases where it could be useful. My son was pretty much oblivious until he was around 10 at which point he noticed that other children his age could read, other boys in particular could read, and he couldn't. So he started to think himself stupid. And that was when my wife finally kind of broke down one day and went to dyslexia.com. And one of the first pages you see there is a list of all the really brilliant, great inventors and important people who've contributed so much who were dyslexic. So the idea is, okay, you know, this is a different way of seeing the world, not something that brands you as stupid. So I think that was good because at, at a certain point, the child needs to be able to understand what's going on. At eight, I don't know, there's, you know, eight-year-old boys are very young to begin with. They're just young. So I might wait a bit. The other thing down line, and this would be a few years later, if you expect that the dyslexia or dysgraphia is going to interfere with say standardized tests if you anticipate your child wanting to take the act or sat or ged or something um, and you have a diagnosis on file for several years then you can petition for special circumstances when you take the test extra time technological assistance etc but you don't need you know you don't need a decade ahead a few years will be fine and so having that as some kind of official record might be helpful. I know when my son applied to the university, you know, we were able to show that. And I think they, you know, accommodated for that on the ACT scores, perhaps a little bit. He had no problem getting in. He had no problem doing very well when he got in, even though he didn't read a book till he's 12 years old. So Jill, question number three, what can you do if you suspect that your child may have a special need, but aren't sure? <laughs> That's kind of like, uh, what do you do if you suspect there's uh, sugar in your candy bar and aren't sure? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's where 
help him as much as he needs and help your child realize that a mistake is an opportunity to learn. I tell my students that almost every day, you know, when they don't do well on a test or when they hand me an essay that needs a ton of work, you know, hey, a mistake's an opportunity to learn. How can I help you if, you know, you don't have a mistake to start with? And if you don't have any mistakes, you're done. I don't need to help you anymore. So, and coming alongside and helping your student. I think we are all poisoned by our own educational experience in public school where, you know, I was in a classroom with 30 other students. And if I needed help, oftentimes a teacher sad to say, would kind of frown and you don't understand this. I've got to help you with this. Pretty soon I just stopped asking for help or, you know, sought it at home. And, you know, of course my parents didn't know, understand the assignment. So that was difficult too. So anytime a child asks, of course, I'll come alongside. And for moms of homeschoolers, you know, our children will not ask. And I tend, you know, I'll go up to my kids, how's your schoolwork doing, going today? They say, fine. And I'm more than happy to, to leave because hot diggity dog, I don't have to do anything. But instead coming alongside, you know, show me what you're doing. And, you know, giving them an opportunity to, to show me where they might be stuck. And then coming alongside and doing the project with them. And that's perfectly okay. With my dyslexic students, most of our writing and our math and everything else is a group project between the two of us. Still to this day, they cannot do a math lesson with me sitting beside them, giving them courage, if nothing else. And that's perfectly okay and and usually what a child needs, with or without special needs. Good. I want to mention also that the book, The Gift of Dyslexia, was very helpful for us because we could read it and, and see, yes, this very much describes our son. It was written by Ron Davis. He was a dyslexic autistic adult who taught himself to read as an adult because he figured out what was going on with his brain and his eyes, and and he managed to develop some very clever accommodation techniques. And so that was a very, very helpful book. Also, Susan Barton with the Barton Reading Method, she has some very good solutions. There's an article on our website at iew.com that I wrote just it's thoughts on dyslexia. It's it's short, it's maybe 1200, 1500 words. Might also be helpful for those of you who are dealing with dyslexia. This question kind of intrigues me, Jill. She says, uh, talking to me, I'm sure, I know you're a fan of the Suzuki method of learning that depends heavily on memorization. Classical conversations also uses a lot of memorization, especially in the early years. What suggestions do you have for the parents of children with dyslexia who by nature find memorization especially challenging? Now, my son had a phenomenal auditory memory. So as long as he didn't have to look at something, he could hear it just once or twice and and remember very easily. So in his case, auditory memory was easy, but I know that isn't true for all kids that have dyslexic uh, issues. What was your How would you chime in on this one? My children are terrible memorizers and auditory visual, you know, using their fingers manipulation. And I was the same way as a child. And it always depressed me when people said, you know, oh, you should have your children memorize all these things when they're young because it's easy for young children to memorize. And it never was for me. And it 
never was for my children. So I felt, you know, like a failure right from the start. So knowing that my children struggle with memory, we do keep working on it, but it's painful. Poems are easier. So the poetry memorization is really helpful because the rhyming helps. But to memorize math facts or Bible verses or things like that is just painstaking and requires a lot more repetitions. Anna Ingham said it takes 50 repetitions for someone to remember something. I think for dyslexics or some children, it's more like 250 or 1,000 repetitions. So what I did, for instance, for math facts, I provided a times chart for my children to use during the early years. So, you know, they had free access to that with the hope that they would eventually learn them. And of course, the little tricks, you know, there's tricks for some of the numbers to, to memorize the, the facts. My my personal problem was seven times eight, and I finally learned five, six, seven, eight. Fifty-six is seventy is seven times eight. But I still have to stop and think. Seven times eight. Okay, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, it's fifty-six, you know. So it just takes time. It it just doesn't get stuck in your brain forever. So don't worry about it. Don't expect them to memorize. I don't do any testing with my kids that require just rote memory of facts. I give them free access to their notes, let them find the information. And that, you know, and we repeat often. I the best thing that's worked for them is to have them write things on cards, you know, like a vocabulary word on the front, the definition on the back, and practice that daily to increase the repetitions, knowing that they need the practice, and then limit, you know, what is important to memorize and what isn't, because they can't do it all. Yeah. Well, uh, Christy has uh, posted a little question I think is relevant here, and you probably have some good experience. She says, how do you keep emotions out, I assume out of the problem out of the experience when they don't know things it's hard not to reveal frustration so actually reading that now i'm thinking maybe it's christy the mom wanting to keep her emotions out uh maybe her frustration is more than the kids when they don't know things but you want to make a comment for christy and all the other moms who just kind of what do you do you say oh what's wrong how come can you just get it i remember my son was looking at the word the right just t-h-e he's 10 years old he's seen it a thousand times and he's like i don't know i'm like it's the you've seen it a thousand times how do you deal with that joel yeah, we, we've all had our below our top day. Mine was, I, my daughter was not reading, and I finally got the book Little Bear. And we're going to read this every day out loud until you can read it fluently. Two weeks, mind you, of reading this book, she's sounding out here for the nine millionth time. Yes, it's a magic E word, blah, 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 blah. She stops and says, Mom, we've seen this word before. <laughs> oh, so you think the words on the page change every day? I mean, what's wrong with you? <laughs> toss the book go out and play I'm done you know so you're going to have emotions and learning to laugh I think is the most helpful that I mean and the other thing I don't know who told me this but you cannot assign motive I mean you and I both with our kids have you know are you just trying to drive me nuts today or what you know whereas really for the most part, children are trying to please us. They are trying to do the right thing. They just are lost and they need more help. Clearly, my daughter needed more help for realizing that the words on the page don't change from day to day. And I needed to come up with another way to help her learn the words because what we were doing wasn't working. So yeah, and send them away. When, you've, when you're when you at the end of your rope, 
you know, you do not have to finish the lesson. I think that's the most important. You're both done. I'm, so you don't have to finish a lesson. You can pick it up again the next day after you have calmed down and everything. And keeping your lessons short so that you do have time to relax because it is exhausting. And the other thing I think is you feel guilt is, okay, you know, we're spending an hour learning the word the, and we have 400 other things we have to do today. How am I going to get it all done? You don't. You do, you don't determine I'm going to do 15 lessons today. Instead, I'm going to spend this many hours on schoolwork today, and we're going to get as far as we can. We'll pick it up again tomorrow because this is not a race. There is not a certain amount you're supposed to do every day. You've got all these years and having graduated seven, six of which were very dyslexic, I will tell you, if you help them and you know help them as much as they need all the way through their senior year, they will graduate and be amazing adults. You know, they won't necessarily do all the classes everyone else does, but dyslexics are brilliant children and you get that with the the gift of dyslexia they they're so creative you know you don't have to waste their time with too many subjects you know and uh seeing they see the world differently and see things that probably i or maybe you and i or a lot of people just would never see which is why often the great inventors and architects and thomas edison and ansel adams and um, probably einstein and you know, they just, they could see patterns and think three-dimensionally in remarkable ways. So also, I think, reminding the kids that, yeah, there's, this is hard for you, but there's other things you do so well, so much better, things that other people can't do. I like this question here, Jill, because it is specific, and you have been doing IEW for about as long as I've had IEW going. We've, we've been in partnership for I don't know, coming on 20 years pretty soon here. What types of modifications did you find with the structure and style writing program that were helpful for your students? You know, thinking the process through, there's the reading, there's the choosing keywords, there's the copying keywords, there's the telling back from the keywords, there's putting the keywords into sentences, there's getting those sentences in some kind of written format and then there's moving through the units. So how might you advise parents who want to be sure the IEW works as well as it can for their dyslexic kids? Yeah, first is do every assignment with your child, make it a group project. Um, I'm thinking of my daughter who was my worst dyslexic. Uh, she didn't read until she was 12. She's, she's the one I wrote PAL for because I was stumped on how to teach her to read. And we did all our writing projects together all the way through high school. She's a senior this year. She wrote her very first essay start to finish pretty much by herself just last month. And she's graduating in a month. So <laughs> it's a hot diggity dog. We made it. But, you know, she needed my my sit down help with her. When she was little, I would read the source text. Uh, we would choose the keywords together. I would write the outline. I'd read the outline to her. She had a hard time starting sentences, so I would start the sentence for her. And, you know, we, we played with the dress-ups together. She didn't really have a dress-up checklist until she was middle school at the earliest. And we every writing project we did together. When she got into high school, starting with her sophomore year, 
a teacher joined our co-op that taught church history and Shakespeare, two classes, both of which required essays every three weeks. That's That really held our feet to the fire because if she were my own student, oh, let's just skip the essay because it's a lot of work. But sitting down with her, wrestling through, how are we going to outline this? What are we going to say? What are we going to do? was really a delight because I got to know my daughter so well and discovered is has strong analytical skills. She just needed help putting them in words. So we, we worked through it and I lamented, is this girl ever going to be able to write an essay on her own? And you know, this last one, aside from a few comma errors, it was beautifully done. So I'm astounded that, you know, again, you cannot help your child too much because handwriting and spelling and reading and all those things are completely different brain functions the more you can do that for your child so all they have to do is the composition helps so even with my high school student I do the scribing and so she put all her energy into the thinking that's the most helpful scribing for your child and coming alongside and giving them courage because they're terrified and think I can't do this but by asking them questions. And then, of course, I never quite get to what you suggest, which I think would be better. You know, ask them, what question should you be asking yourself right now to help move forward? I think that that is crucial to help them. Okay, what process are you going to follow? What's the first thing you're going to do? How are you going to get started on this? What questions can you ask your brain so that they start to internalize how to do this? I see this question here and I wanted to answer it myself because I think we always have to keep hope. It is very easy to get frustrated, even fearful, you know, filled with self-doubt, having evil conversations at night with your spouse. I'm failing this child. Should we put him in an institution? What do we do? And the question here is with dysgraphia, is there an age or stage in a child's life where they begin to overcome it as their body's brains naturally catch up with each other? Or is this a lifelong struggle? The answer is yes and yes. There is an age at which they gain some willpower. Usually I've noticed, uh, certainly with a lot of boys, many girls, this happens around puberty. They just get this inner strength, this will that kind of rises up and they can bring that and and exercise it and kind of force their brain and eyes to do things that they could not previously do. So I've met many men. I've I could name five men all with advanced masters or doctoral level degrees who didn't read a book until they were teenagers. That is not that uncommon. It's obviously frustrating especially, you know, if you're in a school and the school is all obsessed with the fact that you can't read is making it impossible for you to take tests, which brings down their scores, which makes them all look horrible, et cetera, et cetera. But it is not all that rare where you meet an adult who said, yeah, I couldn't really read till I was a teenager. I noticed this with my son and uh, I've noticed it in other people's children. So there is hope with a young child, eight, nine, even 10, even 11, that in the very near future, there will be a physiological change that will give them a lot of inner strength and power and will and determination. That may come out sometimes in ways you're not particularly thrilled about dealing with, but it does allow them to exercise that will over their neurology. However, the other question, the answer is also yes. It is a gift that keeps on giving. It is a way of seeing. 
it is probably something that my son always has to double check everything because his first glance is it a 13 or 31 he, he's got to actually be sure and that just takes more time and more energy so there's kind of a a need for a more constant output of energy when you do that now he has one advantage in that he never read lousy books as a kid he never read drivel he only listened to good and great books being read to him good books great books on a on an iPod. So his language database is very, very extensive. In fact, in a way, he's, you could call him the most literate of, of all the children because he's listened to more books than probably all his sisters have ever read combined. And all that listening is so helpful to build up that language database. But, you know, he's, he, he's an adult and certain things come along and he'll be like, oh, okay, you know, redo got to get that right. Spelling is always tough. And that's okay. We all have things that are easier for us and harder for us. So do you want to add anything under that, Jill? And we need to probably move on to the next area of questions. Yeah. Well, I think this little bit of hope will help. My firstborn dyslexic ended up going to college. She's a computer design uh, graduated, is doing amazing in that job. When she entered college, her professors were telling she was writing like a graduate student. Same thing, listening to books helped her tremendously. I have a son who didn't go to college. He ended up doing videography. He's got a insanely popular YouTube channel. He's known all over the world and he just knows before he posts anything online, he's got to run it through somebody for spelling. So, you know, they, as you said, they learn what their difficulties are. They learn to overcome and then they use their incredible gifts and become creative in what they do. Yeah. This next slide, um, I wanted to address this question with you. I have a six-year-old son with apraxia of speech, sensory processing disorder, and developmental coordination disorder. Well, that's a mouthful. He will be in grade one next year. That has a significant connotation. He is unable to recognize all the alphabet and their sounds right now. He can write his name and copies words that are already written for him, but is unable to do it himself. He is reading, but he is not sounding out the words. He is recognizing them after the book is read to him. What reading writing program do you recommend and what level to start? So let me address a couple things and then turn it over to you. First of all, six-year-old boys are very young. Uh, I would call them pretty much all not quite cooked yet. And certainly if you compare them with six-year-old girls, they are going to appear to be uh, behind in various ways. You who asked this question have obviously been to specialists to gain this particular diagnosis. And again, that's a frustrating thing because they'll give you all these labels, but not tell you what to do. And so I wouldn't obsess or be terribly concerned without with these labels. What they basically mean is there's brain injury. But the truth is uh, every child is brain injured. It's just a question of location and degree because on one end of the spectrum, you have neurologically flawless. And on the other hand, you have comatose. So everybody's somewhere in between. One thing I would probably refer you to um, is the Family Hope Center. That's all one word, familyhopecenter.org. You can read a whole lot on their website. Matthew and Carol Newell are old, old, good, good friends of mine. We worked together at the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential uh, back in the 90s, 80s. I'm sorry. Gosh, I'm getting old. And uh, we also sell a product of Matthew doing a, a, a several hour 
talk on understanding child brain development. So I would recommend you you get that and watch it or you go to the Family Hope Center website and read as much as you can because there are things that you can do to improve brain function that have nothing to do with a reading or writing program. And if you were to spend you know, a year doing a good neurological development program and just kind of put all the academic kind of stuff on hold, you'd probably see a very good catch-up degree. So check that out, please. The next thing I would say is please be, and this is for everyone, but please be thoughtful when you say your children are in a certain grade. One of the great benefits if you are homeschooling is that you do not have to believe in grades. Grades are a very artificial, progressive, modern, dysfunctional, harmful construction that don't mean anything except approximate age. So once upon a time, maybe 100, 150 years ago, when you know there were one-room schoolhouses and there was curriculum and you had to actually pass third grade to go to fourth grade, then grade meant that you had learned something. But now it doesn't mean anything anywhere in any school except that you were born between certain months of a certain year. So I have encouraged parents like you, and I have tried very hard to do this in our family, just don't talk grades. Don't say, I have a son in grade one. Say, you know, I have a six-year-old. I have an eight-year-old. This is what we do. This is where we are. As soon as you say grade one, it, it brings up a whole lot of potentially evil needs to compare your children with other children of approximately the same age. And that only results in bad things. You know, when you compare kids, it's like comparing yourself with other humans. You're either going to become prideful or, or, or vain, prideful and vain or discouraged and frustrated and bitter. So I would strongly encourage you all, not just the person who asked this question, but everyone to just gradually eliminate the idea of grade from your vocabulary. And if you're forced to use that because, you know, you go to a church and they have Sunday school and it's grade four Sunday school, okay, you know, suffer that if you have to. But don't feel that a student is in a particular grade. Instead, say, how old is this child? What are their strengths? What are the areas we need to work on? And what is the next best thing to do? The only thing that matters is that you're make that children are making progress in relation to themselves, not where they are in a certain skill or knowledge set compared to other children. I, I hope that's clear. I mean, if there's one thing I wish I could just put into everyone's mind is a, a freedom, a disconnection. Do not buy in to the way the world talks about grades and curriculum. Do you want to add and maybe comment on the last part of her question, what reading writing program do you recommend? Well, first of all, I want to encourage her. He's recognizing words after the book is read to him. Man, that sounds like your son. Read anything to him. So read aloud to this kid tons because clearly that's how he's taking in information. And don't worry about himself, him reading. As you said, he's very young. I would certainly start with Pal. Get the primary arts of language, reading and writing, get them both. It's designed that you can go through it as slowly or as rapidly as your child is ready for. It's full of games. It'll help with his apraxia, which, you know, is difficulty speaking, whether it's actual speaking or coming up with words to speak. I'm not quite sure 
what that diagnosis gives you but you know as he learns the little poems that are in there you know that gives him the words to say my daughter really struggled with with speech with pronouncing sounds and as we went through the phonics and she had to orally tell me the sounds of these letters that corrected much of her speech so a lot of these things will be dealt with just with the methodology that pal uses and don't stop reading aloud to him ever. <laughs> I still read aloud to my high school students. And, you know, I, the one thing all eight of my children have told me that they loved the most about homeschooling was the hours and hours that I sat at the kitchen table reading to them with them coloring or playing with Legos or something. So you can never not read enough aloud to your children. And Nick, if you can put a link to the read aloud help me with the, the name, Andrew, um, her, the, Oh, Sarah McKenzie, read aloud revival. Thank you. My own dyslexia. I can't grab names sometimes. Yeah. She, she has a whole program to get you started and she's such a bright bubbly person. So start there. And if that's all you do for school, that's perfectly okay to read aloud and play for boys, especially. And so that's, that's my advice. I want to quickly address one little question I saw in the chat. And then I've got another question for you, which you can answer much better than I can. Someone asked about state testing. What do you do when your state law says you have to have your child evaluated or tested at the first, third, et cetera? So here's the answer to that question. Do what is required by the law and ignore the results. So take the kids in, do the testing, whatever. When the envelope comes in the mail, there's no law that says you have to look at it. Just Bury it in the deepest, darkest file cabinet you can find, and 10 years later, you can find it and laugh. There, There's no tremendous value to you in knowing that your kid is in the 23rd or the 67th or the 99th percentile because you know what your child needs more than any test is ever going to indicate. So I would say do what the law requires, but don't give it more value than it has, which is just, it's a hoop you, you jump through. Okay, so Jill, this is a question in the Q&A box from Christy, and I think you need to answer this one. How do you manage your time with each child? Uh, that may be too big of a question <laughs> for this talk. I have six children at home, four students, and a baby toddler. My oldest is the one struggling, hard to find time to meet all their needs. I know you have balanced many children and in some of them do just require more time than others. I will say, you know, if my wife were here, she'd be better to answer this than I would. But why don't you uh, go for a couple minutes and tell her how you balance the complexity of kids at home, some of whom had a, a lot of needs? Yeah, you don't try to do everything. Simplify. I think that's why I ended up reading aloud to all my children so much because most of them couldn't read even as they got older. I lamented all my friends who, oh, I just have my kids go get their books and do their schoolwork. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I can't, they can't do anything by themselves for so many years. It was very discouraging and I felt like a failure as a homeschool mom. But I learned that I could sit with all of them around the kitchen table doing things. The toddler was at my feet, the baby's in the swing, everybody else is, you know, drawing or playing with Legos or clay or something while I read books aloud and we talked about what I read. So one of my favorite books was Carry On Mr. Bowditch. So it was set 
it was this navigator who invented you know, modern navigation. And so whenever he talked about where he went, we looked it up on the map. I asked him what words meant when it talked about him working in a ship's chandlery. We looked up that word and we talked about what might be there. When he talked about how you can tell time by the Big Dipper, boy, guess what we did that night. So that's the stuff that stuck. And it was a pleasure to be reading a novel, a historical novel aloud to my children. We read fantasy and we talked about, you know, what do you think is going to happen next? And do you like that character? Why would you like to be like him? What would you have done differently? All of that was the best education my children could get. I taught a high school student who had pretty much only spent his life reading henty books. Man, that kid was full of historical information. He was a great resource and vocabulary. And vocabulary. And man, he could write the most phenomenal essays because of his lifelong experience reading. So that's the most important. And so basically all I did for their younger years was I read aloud and we did math. That was it. Science came... all subjects come from the reading and then one one by one you know I and worked on reading and that type of thing I, I would like to add to that I think it's valuable to consider just teaching from the top down so if you have to prioritize your one-on-one time it's your oldest child you've got the least amount of time remaining and you can teach a lesson or do a writing project or something that is specific for them and let everybody just hang out and watch or not watch and you'll get a trickle down, you get an osmosis effect. So I think if you prioritize time with the oldest student, you feel like, okay, at least, you know, at least I'm doing that. And then what you often find is the youngest student has learned a whole lot of stuff that you never even attempted to teach them just because of being in the environment. So quick question here. I think a lot of people may be echoing this in their minds. I have a seven-year-old daughter who does not know her ABCs, can barely write her name, not even count past three. Would the Family Hope Center be helpful for us? Would you recommend anything else? I would strongly say no one can go wrong learning about child brain development. The Family Hope Center is not only a place you can go and take a child and get an evaluation and a program of treatment prescribed, but they also have a very extensive course that teaches parents how to do neurological development program at home with their own children. It's called uh, License to Thrive, I believe. So yes, anyone who has any question about is their children's disability a neurological thing and can it be helped, I would first send you to familyhopecenter.org. Do that, then let's continue the conversation. I wanted also to leave this question up about cursive. Jill, you just put together a cursive program that we have published, so thank you for that. I have a talk, it's an hour-long talk called Paper and Pen, What the Research Says. Maybe Nick or Kristen, someone could put up a link to that. It goes over a lot of research about whether it's better in terms of comprehension, reading on paper versus reading on screens, typing versus handwriting. And there's a good 10, 15 minutes discussing the benefits of cursive and especially for dyslexic kids. It's virtually impossible to reverse letters when you learn cursive. There's some aspects that actually are easier for children about cursive. And so there's a whole discussion and some of the research on that. So I won't go over that right now because I do want to save time for some of these other non-dyslexia related questions. 
go ahead and take a look at that uh, talk. I believe you can listen to it for free or maybe download it for a few dollars. So, Can I throw in one quick thing on? Sure. Yes, quickly. With handwriting, don't use handwriting sheets that they trace. Instead, you buy one program once, they learn how to do cursive, and then they do their work in cursive. You don't need year after year of handwriting books. Yeah. That And there's actually research to show that tracing does far less in terms of brain activity and storing information, trying to freehand copy and learn that way. So preparing kids who struggle, a struggling learner, whether it's dyslexia, spectrum, ADHD, how do we prepare kids for the college entrance process? I'll, I'll make it a little more general than that. You've been through this many times. I talked a little bit about my son. You want to add anything in there? I think a lot of parents have a fear like, oh, no, it's going to be really hard to get into college and then discover, no, it wasn't that hard at all. What did you find in was most helpful here? The, the college wants your money, so they don't really care. I did not worry about the tests. For my first couple, I had them practice. And I took them through a course for my son, the, you know, the, the one who's now working as a videographer and is making more money than my husband and I doing what he's doing. I, I just said, go take the test. You know, the school's requiring a score. I don't care what you get. And yeah, so he took the test. When he went to the school, he had to take all of my kids at college had to take placement tests. So they don't really care. And my one son had to take some high school level math okay, so you got to pay for a math course. Oh, well, you know, that's just life. So frankly, I never had them take the SAT or ACT unless they absolutely had to to get into college because I knew they wouldn't score well. And that's okay. My engineering son, who is one of few guys in the state who is certified in a certain programming language, did very poorly on the math section of the SAT. But he's a brilliant engineer and passed all his math classes with A's in college. So He's just a poor test taker. So I, I just didn't lose any sleep over it. It's not worth it. This question here basically I think is how do I get my child to focus? It looks like she's doing a great job. She's 12 years old. She's done three years of theme-based books. She writes beautifully when she can focus. And I don't want to kill her spirit and imagination. Are there any secret tips or tricks to help children focus? Well, my observation would be she's 12 years old. So think about that. That's a very hard time for a lot of girls to do focus on anything. Their hormones zapped out, they're distracted, they're confused, their brains are changing. So I, I wouldn't have a lot of concern and I would just be super enthusiastic and be excited about what you have done and and not worry too much about this phase of life. Jill, you'd probably second that and maybe add in, do you have any secret tip or tricks to help kids focus? Come alongside and be excited. So if you want her to focus on math, come alongside and, oh, sweetie, this is so cool. Let me show you what I learned today. And if you're, hey, go do your math, of course she's not going to focus. And I think your teaching boys talk is going to give the answers for that. If it's not something they're interested in, yeah, you Either find a motivation or don't bother with it. Tina's got a question in the sidebar. It's probably she's got the answer, but the very short answer, she said, do you recommend reading out loud to teenagers? The answer is yes, absolutely, absolutely. Don't ever stop. My friend Andrew Kern, someone asked him, when do you stop reading out loud to kids? And he said, well, my father was reading out loud to me two weeks before he died at 
70-something years old. So you can never go wrong by reading out loud. And shoot, you know, I read out loud to my wife, and she enjoys that, I think. At least she says so. ADD, ADHD, struggling with writing, endurance, not being able to think, pressured, uh, all that anxiety. You have a little experience with that, Jill? With anxiety? Yeah, and just the, you know, the struggling to just do stuff because of the attention issues and and its accompanying distractibilities. Yeah, letting them use their hands while, like while I'm reading and they were always coloring and playing with Legos or letting my boys jump up and down while I taught them. Boys especially, and I'm, you know, there's a lot of girls that just need to wiggle. Let them wiggle. Let them doodle on their paper. Let them curl up the, the paper edges because keeping that body moving helps tremendously with their their being able. And, you know, if I'm getting frustrated, I need to stop because it is it's exhausting to teach a child that's constantly moving or or whatnot. And this this is where, you know, occupational therapy can help if they're struggling with their muscles not being strong. Outside time can help. And the fear and frustration for them is to encourage them, you're okay right where you're at. I remember my son was really discouraged that his brother was reading so well and he was still struggling. And, you know, I said, Caleb, you can look at, you can build anything out of Legos. Your brother can hardly get two blocks together to keep them staying. So, you know, you just, you guys have different skills and you're going to read someday. You're never going to, you know, you may not be the same as your brother, but I wouldn't want you to be. So, and, you know, let make sure they're spending time every day doing something that they're good at so that they're not constantly frustrated. Yeah. Uh, and then help them with everything so that they can succeed. Yeah. One uh, additional idea that I have suggested and had good feedback on, I'll mention, there are a lot of people here who have asked the question, how do you adjust IEW for kids who struggle? And we've talked a little bit about that. Can't help too much. Here's one thing. If you're homeschooling, you must have a large whiteboard in your house. That's an absolute first thing. You would buy that before you'd buy anything else, in my view. And when a child is putting the keywords into sentences, there's a few ways a whiteboard is tremendously useful. One is, if that child is dictating those sentences and you are writing them, you write the sentences on the whiteboard and please, as neatly as possible. I've seen some mothers who take dictation from their kids and they write it and the kids have absolutely no chance of reading their handwriting. So, you know, slow down, learn how to print neatly if you need to, and write it on the whiteboard so that the child can see in big letters in a visually easy way what he said. And if possible, he can copy it from the whiteboard as you're writing it. So. He dictates the sentence. You write what he said. He sees what you wrote in big, easy-to-see letters, and he attempts to copy those on a piece of paper. Now, if he can't copy them on a piece of paper, that's fine. It's no big deal. That's just a step down line. Another way that a whiteboard can be useful is to have a child actually do their writing at the whiteboard. Rather than trying to do it small, fine motor, tiny motion, eyes tired, Boys have to sit down, get exhausted from sitting more than three minutes. If a child could actually write the whole composition or a paragraph of the thing, if it's longer, on the whiteboard, they can then stand up, they can move around. It's more gross motor. It's going to work a lot better for a lot of kids. 
then just take a picture of the whiteboard, throw it in your file and say, yep, that was our writing for the day. Uh, so there's no rule that says they have to do an on paper completion thing. That's another strategy. I started recommending that years ago, and now I've had so many people come up to me at you know conventions and say, you know, thank you so much. That made all the difference. He was really able to to write. I put this question up here for two reasons. This is our third year homeschooling. Our youngest son, sixth grade, has ADHD. He's been doing IEW for that long as well. It took him a long time to finally get the concept. He wants to go to traditional public school next year. What if they have a different way of teaching writing than how he's learned with IEW? We're nervous it will discourage him from writing if they try to make him change his style. Okay, I'm going to address three parts of this. Number one, congratulations. God bless you. Three years of homeschooling. You got IEW. That means it's going well. It would be very, very good if you were able to continue teaching him IEW because they really won't teach writing at public schools. In fact, I would say 80 to 90% of the public school teachers I have met, and I'm talking good people that I meet, will say, I do not know how to teach writing. I don't like what we're supposed to do. It never works. So the teachers themselves acknowledge that. So you intend to keep teaching him IEW if you do indeed make the decision to put him in public school. Okay, here's the second thing I would say. If you're going to put him in a public school, then I strongly recommend that you go sit there for a day before the end of school this year. Sit in that you know, grade six or grade seven middle school classroom for an entire day and read the textbooks that are there, the social studies, the literature, right? The science, if there is one, they, you may have to argue, you may have to claim, you know, taxpayer rights, you know, but, but it would, in my view, it would be irresponsible for anyone to put their child in a school, public or private, unless they spent at least one day observing in that school, looking at the social environment, meeting the teachers, seeing how the teachers interact with the student, looking at how much very small percentage of the time in the school is actually learning. And most of it, you know, 80, 90 some percent very well could be logistics, classroom management, discipline, all this stuff. So don't make this decision based on what he wants unless you have done due diligence first. That would be my second point. My third point is if he wants out after the first six weeks or two months, just don't even hesitate. Pull him right back out because generally if you label him as ADHD and he thinks he's ADD or ADHD, he's not going to do very well in that environment anyway. It's probably one of the worst environments. They're maybe going to try to convince you that he needs medication or whatnot. So you know, this question gives me a very strong, intense desire to have a long, long talk with you. But I've tried to summarize this in those three points, which is you're going to end up teaching him everything anyway, because the schools don't do it, especially in writing, but probably in math and everything else. Every time I put my kid in a school, I end up realizing I have to teach them everything anyway. Don't go do it unless you do due diligence. And if he says, I want out, don't hesitate. Pull him right back out and go back to normal life. Okay, Jill, we are coming to the top of the hour. I, do you have any comments for language processing disabilities? This would be not 
in the the dysgraphia dyslexia but even into the auditory processing even into the recall function kids who know stuff but they just can't find the words or they hear things out of order there are a lot of questions in this whole area any quick thoughts or directions for folks with that again whether or not it's expressive or they're not taking in the information help them as much as possible if they're having trouble understanding things one of my daughters couldn't understand any novel we read aloud i had to stop every sentence and explain what was going on draw pictures that type of thing if they're having trouble creating sentences which that same daughter also struggled with help them start when they're writing help them start their sentences and lots of questionings you know you just have to keep poking around it to help them find what they're thinking and then help them put it into words time consuming but taking a little bit of time every day to help them with whatever version they're struggling with is key also there's uh you know there's also the case where kids they decode just fine they don't have a problem saying what the words are but when you ask them well what did you read they have no idea the comprehension is just not there any quick tips for building that auditory comprehension in kids like that yeah again reading aloud to them and explaining things as you go you know if you're reading a book that the the water is splashing over the waves where is this person i don't know well there's water splashing (laughs) splashing over the deck they must be on a ship i mean you have to make the connections they're not going to make them like you and i would a series of unfortunate events was a gift. That was the first book my daughter could actually tell me the plot. And it's a gift because it's 13 books with the same characters, the essentially the same plot. And what's funny to me, now in this situation, this word would mean this, but in our dour situation, it means this. Well, that was a gift to my child because she had no clue of the connotation of words. And so because out of fun, everything was explained, Uh, She loved those books, and that finally, oh, that's how books work. Another series, Hank the Cow Dog. Get them on tape because, or on audio, because he sings songs and things. But same thing, 50-some books, same characters, essentially the same plot with the protagonist being kind of dumb that everything, everything gets by him, and then he suddenly figures it out at the end and then explains it to the reader. So those books are really helpful for developing the ability to infer, and it just takes time and practice. Good. Um, there were quite a number of questions. People had, you know, various certain circumstances, usually a child that they perceived as being behind in some way in writing, And their question is where to start with the IEW materials. Those questions, we're happy to answer those individually, just chat or phone call to our customer service department. And we've got a marvelous team of people that will hear your situation and help you make a decision on what's best. One of the things that, you know, we always say is you start with yourself. If you're trying to help a child who's trying to learn to write, if you're helping a child who's struggling, if you're trying to help a child who's accelerated, if you're trying to help a child you just put in a school or you're trying to help a child you just took out of school, the first thing to do is learn our program yourself with the Teaching Writing Structure and Style course. That's the absolute always first thing to do because if you learn it, then you can help. If you don't learn it, how are you going to help? And then everything else we sell 
is really supplemental to that. We've got student videos, we've got theme-based writing lessons some of you are aware of, we've got writing source packets, we've got you know a lot of stuff but all of that stuff is only going to be effective if you start with yourself. So learn teaching writing structure and style, learn our structural models, learn the techniques, wrestle with the process, understand everything from the basic keyword outline to the, the invention process with the essay models, learn it all. And then you can do uh, what Jill and I started out with here, which is help your children enough so that they can be successful, whatever their issues or problems are. And don't ever worry about helping them too much. They will tell you when they don't need help anymore. So these were just a tremendous response. And it's in a way seems criminal to only spend one hour answering so many excellent questions. I know that some of you are on a schedule and you have to be doing various things. I'm just going to flip through and see if there's any question that's significantly different than what we have already talked about. While Andrew's doing that, I'm going to mention we have a forum on the IEW website that if you have a question that didn't get answered or a new one, please join the IEW forum. Nick can put the link into the chat and ask your questions there. You know, we have qualified people who are answering and if they get stuck they pass them on to Andrew or myself and we'll be glad to give our two cents so the conversation can continue yeah I think the the last question is we've kind of addressed it but it's it's always how do I fit it all in I think you know my good friend Martin Cothran who they homeschooled and you know he would come home and his wife would say oh we didn't get anything done it was a horrible day we had this problem and that problem and I feel like such a failure and he would say Sweetheart, did they read anything or did you read to them anything? Okay, good. Check. Did they do any math? Yes. Okay. Check. Did they do some Latin? Yes. Okay. Check. Great. You did everything that's necessary. Everything else is, is frosting. So I think we do have to keep the perspective that the world tries to convince us that ed, you know schooling and homeschooling and education is all about this great huge load of stuff that you've got to squeeze into one school year and then squeeze it into 12 school years and if you miss something you will fail to cover all the bases and your child will be handicapped forever because of your shortcoming let me just remind everyone schools do not cover all the bases they don't get everything done. None, all the teachers know that you never get everything done. It's, it's kind of, in a way, a plot against being joyful and relaxed and saying, ah, look what we did do by causing us to focus on what we failed to do. So I would end by saying to everyone, let's all, and I have to give myself this reminder, and I think in all of our life, but particularly with struggling learners, let's focus on what we did accomplish at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the year. And, and remember that they're God's kids. He made them, they are his, and we're trying to help out and do our best, but it's really, they're really his problem. <laughs> and, and he will provide the grace, he will provide the wisdom, he will direct them. And I think having adult children, as Jill and I both have, almost all of our children are adults, it gives you this wonderful freedom to look back and say, you know, 
all that stuff that seemed so important, like not finishing the math book by June, is completely irrelevant in the big picture of who they become because they are God's children and he has his plan and his mission for them. And as long as we strive to do our best, keep our hearts in the right place, stay humble and teachable and loving and giving plenty of nurturing, they will grow up and it will all be wonderful in the end. All right. Well, Jill, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We ran a few minutes over, but what fantastic participation. We'll see you later. Jill, God bless you. My best to all your kids and have a good rest of the time with your dad there in Chicago. Well, thank you so much. I tell people all the time, your company saved my homeschool. So I hope it can save many others as well. Well, in a certain way, you saved our company. (laughs) We make a good team. God bless you. (laughs) Bye. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudoua and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.